Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I hope you're packed and ready to go, because this week we're headed through the state of New Jersey, and we've got plenty of sights to see. Few states embrace the strange and mysterious side of their heritage the way New Jersey does. But when your history is brimming with the unexplained the way Jersey's is, well, I suppose it's hard to ignore. In fact, there's an entire website Weird New Jersey, that's dedicated to cataloging and sharing tales of the odd goings-on in the Garden State, both historical legends and first-hand personal encounters. Link is in the show notes if you'd like to check it out for yourself. But if there's one place in New Jersey where we're most likely to get the biggest bang for our paranormal buck, that title goes to a broad stretch of New Jersey wilderness known as the Pine Barrens. Considering its proximity to the sprawling metropolises of Philadelphia and New York, a surprising majority of the Pine Barrens' more than one million acres is largely untouched. Dense trees and foliage broken only by the occasional rushing road or river. Wander off the beaten path, though. Dive deep below the green, shadowed tide of Jersey's untamed wilderness and it's hard not to let your imagination run free, untethered. Of course, there's no lack of dark tales to feed the fire of your mind, either. There are enough frightening tales and legends that call the Pine Barrens home to make an entire episode, hell, maybe even a whole podcast. Near-endless accounts of ghosts, creatures, and paranormal phenomena, some of which include the headless ghost of Captain Kidd, who wanders the beach in search of his hidden treasure. The Black Dog, a ghostly canine 
whose quiet presence serves as a sad reminder of a cabin boy and his pet who were brutally murdered by pirates. There's the lonely specter of the golden-haired girl, forever staring out to sea, and the white stag, who helps guide and protect wayward travelers through the pines. But there's one resident I feel like it'd be downright irresponsible not to get to know a little better, the most famous resident of the New Jersey Pine Barrens. No doubt, it's someone, or something, you've heard of before. Dark leathery wings, hooved feet, a horned head that resembles a horse or goat, and a long forked tail. Based on appearance alone, the Jersey Devil comes by its name honestly. But it's the devil's deeds that have really cemented its place at the top of the food chain. Back in 1735, a Pine Barrens resident, or Piney, known as Mother Leeds, had become pregnant with her thirteenth child. Not surprising, maybe, that after that many kids she was less than ecstatic. Her husband didn't help matters, either. He spent more time at the bottom of a bottle than out providing for his family. Upon discovering the pregnancy, and in a moment of pure exasperation, Mother Leeds threw her hands up and yelled at the sky, Let this one be a devil! Fast forward several months, the fleeting moment utterly forgotten. It's late at night, in the middle of a torrential thunderstorm, when Mother Leeds goes into labor. The sky is black as pitch, cut through with frequent splashes of dazzling electricity. Rolling thunder shakes the small house, adding a deep bassy boom to the crescendoing screams of pain. Surrounded by midwives, the birth, by all accounts, was perfect. And the thirteenth addition to the Leeds family? A normal, healthy baby boy. But just as the mother began to relax, laying back in an exhausted daze, baby swaddled in her arms, something began to happen. The baby began to change. The newborn began to shift and grow. Horns began to sprout from its head, and razor-sharp claws tore from beneath its tiny fingertips. Coarse black hair and dark feathers pierced its once soft baby-smooth skin. And suddenly, the hastily spoken words of so many months ago flooded back to Mother Leeds. Let this one be a devil, she'd said. And it was. She stared in shock and terror at the creature that had emerged from her womb only moments earlier. It reared up on cloven feet and unfurled large, leathery wings, eyes glowing a sinister red. With deadly swiftness, it descended on its helpless mother, tearing her to ribbons with claws and teeth, feeding on the woman who had given it life before turning on the horrified midwives. It savaged the women, shredding their flesh, tearing limbs from their bodies before knocking down the door to the next room, where its father and siblings hid. It violently attacked them, too, clawing and biting with demonic ferocity, shedding their blood and taking their lives with animalistic coldness and precision 
before tearing up the chimney in a shower of rubble and disappearing into the stormy night. Since that fateful night, the chilling wail of the Jersey Devil has been heard often throughout the Pine Barrens. It's been blamed for the murder of livestock, terrorizing of settlements, and disappearance of countless people who wandered too far into the southern New Jersey wilderness. But the devil was never more active than it was in early 1909. It began with strange tracks in the snow, mysterious cloven footprints that traversed fields and fences, across backyards, and along rooftops. When locals tried to track the unidentified creature with hunting dogs, the hounds refused to follow the tracks. Fear began to mount, and terrified pineys were scared to leave their homes to venture into the woods, even in daylight. Schools closed, mills and other businesses ground to a halt. The creature was getting bolder, too. It was sighted in Camden and nearby Bristol, Pennsylvania, where police in both cities attempted to bring it down with gunfire, but to no effect. The devil slaughtered livestock, attacked a late-night social club meeting, terrorized trolley cars full of passengers, and attempted to eat a woman's dog until she chased it away with a few whacks of a broom handle. Eventually, sightings and evidence of the creature's activity began to slow to a trickle. And while stories of the Jersey Devil's violent deeds still surface today, it's never had a burst of activity quite like that since. So, whether it's a real-life creature that roams the wilderness of southern New Jersey, or just a popular piece of folklore to put on t-shirts and hockey jerseys, well, you'll find pineys who passionately defend each side of the argument. But spend one night in the New Jersey Pine Barrens, and that might be all it takes to pick which side of the argument you're on. On to our fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Colleen Moyne. Colleen lives in the beautiful riverside township of Manham in South Australia. When she's not writing creepy stories, she's writing poetry, articles, and reviews. Her first solo poetry collection was published earlier this year, and she is working on her second. While to the outside world, she comes across as a mild-mannered grandmother, Colleen loves to channel her inner weirdo to produce some spine-chilling stories and murder mysteries. Join me, children of the night, for Colleen Moyne's A Child for Life, a Tales to Terrify original. Lois washed her hands and studied her reflection in the bathroom mirror. This light was never very flattering, and today was certainly no different. She looked older than her 41 years. Signs of middle age were already beginning to show in the crinkly lines around her eyes 
and the constant dragging on cigarettes had left tiny creases along her thin lips. Late nights, junk food, and too much red wine had all taken their toll. Her hair, once a rich honey blonde, was now peppered with gray and hung limply around her lean white face. Stumbling back to the couch, back to the overflowing ashtray and the almost empty bottle of Amarone, Lois curled her feet up under her, clutched a faded cushion to her chest, and began to cry. Today had, so far, been the worst day of her life. Nothing in Lois's life had ever gone according to plan. In her teens, she made up her mind that she would become the exact opposite of what her own mother was, a miserable, dowdy housewife with a brood of scruffy children and an abusive husband. Lois had vowed never to let that happen to her. She would stay single and unencumbered. But this chosen lifestyle had quickly lost its appeal. Being single was lonely, and the older she became, the more she realized that life was passing her by, and so was the opportunity to change her mind. More and more, her thoughts turned to the notion of having a child. That's what she wanted more than anything, a child of her own. Just one would do, a son or daughter, to love and spoil but it seemed like it would never happen. The odds were growing slimmer with every passing day, leaving Lois feeling empty and bereft. She was alone and lonely, with an inconsequential job and no social life. Lois could live without a man. It had been so long since she had anybody special, but the desire for a baby overwhelmed her. It ate her up inside. She would watch mothers with their children in the stores or on the bus, and the pain would tear at her heart and tighten her breath until she was forced to look away to hide the tears. Then today came the final blow. Lois's GP broke the news that she had begun early menopause. The symptoms had been niggling for several months, but Lois had put it down to the stress of work and moving to a new flat. Forty-one was too young to be coming to the end of her reproductive years. Lots of women were having babies so much later than that. The idea of losing her ability to conceive a child had played on Lois's mind, but the escalating irritability and irregular cycles coupled with night after night of restless, sweaty sleep, bringing unexplainable dreams, had forced her to confront the inevitable truth. Lois clumsily splashed the last of the wine into her glass and downed it in one loud slurp. In times of desperation, her mother had always prayed to God, but from Lois's recollection, God had never responded. Nothing ever changed. As she got older, Lois had spurned the church, finding very little comfort in the thought of laying her fate in the hands of an unseen, unproven higher power that was purported to save and protect. 
If there was a God, where was he? And why wasn't he saving her and protecting her from this lonely life? I'd rather worship Satan than a useless God, she thought bitterly. He sounds like he'd be much more my style. I'd promise him my soul if I thought he could give me what I want. She giggled ironically at the thought of becoming a Satan worshiper. From what she'd seen on television, Satanism was simply a matter of drawing pentagrams on the floor in chalk and chanting in robes. Lois shook away these inane thoughts and lay back, closing her eyes and letting the amarone course through her body, dulling the pain. Soon, bleary-eyed from too much alcohol and too many tears, she allowed the exhaustion of the day to engulf her. Slumped across the couch, and with her face still buried in the damp cushion, she slept. After what seemed like only minutes, Lois stirred, faintly aware of a sound coming from the other side of the room. It was rather like the hiss of steam from an overheated car engine. The sound grew steadily louder, now accompanied by a wafting odor. Lois struggled to drag open her sticky eyes. The room was darker now, but still visible and bathed in a fine mist. Lois blamed the tears. She blinked several times, but the mist remained and the smell became stronger. Fire, she thought in alarm, and bolted up from the couch expecting to see flames. But what she saw as she turned sent her reeling backwards onto the couch again, hitting her head on the wall behind with a loud thump. The smell was so strong now it burned her nostrils. It was the smell of sulfur and it was coming from the large, bluish-black creature that materialized before her from what was now obviously not mist, but smoke. Lois's mind lurched with panic, but her body refused to react. Even if she could have moved, the huge form of the creature obscured the doorway behind it, blocking any chance of escape. It stood with its large eyes fixed on her. From its broad, leathery head to its clawed feet, it must have been almost four meters tall. The ceiling in Lois's flat was just over three and a half, and the creature had to crouch to clear it. Lois tried to comprehend what she saw. She couldn't speak. She couldn't move. She was fixed where she sat her head pounding and her chest heaving with fright, her mind screaming to run, to get away from this monstrosity. The sulfurous smoke still swirling through the room filled her throat and lungs. If this was a dream, it was the most vivid, frightening one Lois had ever experienced. Although she still sat motionless on the couch, struggling for breath, she managed at least to drag her eyes away from the fixed stare for long enough to take in the full visage of the terrible beast. Each detail, each ridge and fold of the thick, flawless skin fixed itself into her mind 
with extraordinary clarity. The creature seemed reptilian, almost prehistoric, with powerful muscled arms and legs. Its hands and feet were long and bony, ending in sharp black talons, and it was obviously male from the large appendage that swayed between its thighs. The torso was hairless and glossy. Her eyes made their way back to his, locked once more in the penetrating stare. Seeing them more clearly now, she was astonished to find that the eyes were human-like, almond-shaped and intense, with dark green irises and prominent red capillaries. The nose was wide and flat. Lois found herself breathing more easily now as the smoke began to dissipate, and her fear began to subside to cautious curiosity. Not sure whether it was the alcohol or a dream, she put her initial fear aside and allowed herself to be drawn in by the creature's charismatic presence. She had to admit she felt aroused by him. After a long silence, save for the hissing sound which now abated with the settling of the smoke, the creature spoke. He had large, sharp, yellowed teeth that protruded between his thick lips, and his voice was deep, rich, and articulate. You are the one known as Lois. It was more of a statement than a question. Lois opened her mouth, but nothing came out. She nodded slowly. You have summoned me. You wish to barter. B-barter? Lois managed a whisper. You wish to offer me your soul in trade. I, I don't know what you mean. Your mind spoke. It summoned me. You promised your soul. Tell me what you wish in return. Oh, God! Lois found her voice. You do not acknowledge a god, the creature snapped. You do not choose to will your soul to a god. You choose to will your soul to me. I, I... Lois remembered her wine-fueled thoughts from earlier in the evening... I didn't. I don't. I know your thoughts, but you must give them voice. How? Why? I... Lois struggled to grasp the situation, to process what the creature was saying. He continued, his voice crackling like a winter fire. You wish for a child. Lois drew in a sharp breath. This creature knew her deepest desire. He had heard her longing, heard her cursing an unfair god, heard her promise her soul to the devil. No, this can't be. You can't be. Lois pressed her palms to her temples, still feeling a little drunk. You summoned me. You wish to conceive and bear a child. I can give you that gift but you must honor your promise to give me your soul in return. A long silence fell over Lois while she absorbed this last statement. She wasn't so frightened anymore. She was intrigued. 
She picked up a packet of cigarettes from the coffee table and withdrew one, placing it between her lips with slow deliberation, her eyes not leaving the creature for a moment. Striking a match to light it, she again smelled the familiar scent of sulfur. With the cigarette lit, she took a long, deep drag and finally spoke, her voice strong now. How can you give me a child? The cigarette smoke wafted from her mouth with the words, I'm no longer able to conceive, and even if I could, I know what you are. How can I trust you? Do not concern yourself, he assured her. I will make you fertile, and you will carry and bear a healthy infant. Do you, or do you not, wish to bear a child? Do not waste my time. I do, but... She took another long drag of the cigarette. You must trust me, Lois. The deep voice sent a little thrill up her spine. Lois wavered between incredulity at what she was seeing and hearing and excitement at the prospect of being able to have the child she so desperately wanted. This could all be a crazy dream, but it certainly felt real. The creature continued, In exchange for this gift, your soul will become mine at the end of your life. I... I don't know, stammered Lois. What does that mean? What will happen when I die? Will I go to hell? She twisted the cigarette into a nearby ashtray. The creature lowered his large head and slowly shook it. A low rumble that Lois took as a chuckle rolled from his throat. He looked back at her, his emerald eyes burrowing deep into hers, sending another shiver through her body. Her gaze wandered back to the smooth, well-defined triangle just below his stomach and began to inch downward. He read her thoughts, but ignored them and continued. Do not hold on to the ignorant concept of hell, Lois. Hell is a myth created by God-fearing parents to bribe gullible children. Your hell, as you call it, is merely nothingness. At the moment of death, your body simply ceases to function and your soul is transferred to another. I will simply be that other. I will take ownership of your soul. You will slip into nothingness. But why? What use do you have for my soul? The acquisition of souls is what allows me to live on. That is all. I have no ancestors and no heirs. I am a single entity, the only one of my kind. This is the only way I can continue to exist. I... I don't know. Consider your options, Lois, continued the demon patiently, his deep, sensuous voice washing over her. If you retract your offer, I will graciously leave and you will return to the life you have now. A lonely, futile life with no child. No God, 
and nothing to show for it when you die. If you agree to the trade, you will bear a child before the year is out, and your life will have the meaning and purpose that you crave. Lois was silent, but her mind was in turmoil. What will you choose, Lois? Speak now. Does your offer still stand? When Lois finally spoke, her voice sounded small and weak. When you impregnate me, will it be like a regular man and woman? I mean, will we have sex? She allowed her eyes to flick again to the creature's appendage and linger there for a brief moment, captivated by the way it trembled slightly as he chuckled again. Have no fear. I will come to you in your sleep. You will know when I have sown the seed. Lois was almost disappointed by this. Another silent pause. Okay. I choose to go through with the trade. I choose to have a child, and in exchange, I offer you my soul at the end of my life. Almost immediately, a thunderous crackle shuddered the room, accompanied by a painful blaze of light. It might have been a crude special effect from a B-grade movie, except that it was happening in the middle of Lois's living room. By the time she had sufficiently recovered, the creature was gone. Lois felt a prickle of sadness, surprised that she had been drawn in so quickly by his potent masculinity. Her initial fear had turned into intense desire. Lois shook her head and ran her fingers through her thin hair. She was still feeling the effects of the alcohol simmering in her stomach, but now an ever-growing drowsiness was beckoning her. She lay back onto the couch and slept deeply. The morning dawned gloomy and overcast. Lois unfurled into wakefulness with a heavy head and aching limbs. She sat hunched and miserable on the edge of the chair, willing her body to move, but feeling decidedly squeamish. The preceding night was a distant blur, and she made a silent oath to herself that she would never drink red wine again. What little she could remember of her dreams seemed outrageous now in the light of day. She had vague recollections of a giant, devil-like creature with a huge penis trying to seduce her by promising her a child. <laughs> what nonsense! She could easily explain it all away. Her GP, Dr. Singh, was Indian, with smooth, dark skin and long fingers. She was mildly attracted to him, and of course, he was the one who delivered the bad news to her that she would never have a child. Crazy dreams had been a side effect of her menopause for months now. Needing an excuse to sit there a little longer, Lois fumbled for the remote control and flicked on the television. That's when she found out that she had been asleep for 48 hours. In a panic, Lois dragged herself into a standing position, 
only to be overcome by an acute desire to vomit. She staggered to the bathroom, holding her mouth firmly shut and collapsed beside the toilet, spending the next fifteen minutes nursing the ceramic bowl between her forearms and crying like a child. When, another three days later, Lois's queasiness hadn't improved, she took herself once more to Dr. Singh, expecting that he would scold her for her alcoholic binge and send her off with a prescription of healthy food and fresh air. At the very least, she hoped to obtain a certificate allowing her a few more days off work. What her doctor did tell her, however, was that he believed she was pregnant. A blood test soon confirmed that he was right. Lois was going to have a baby. Driving home, Lois's mind clamored with thoughts. She struggled to piece together shards of the dream she'd had on that alcohol-drenched night and to try and link them to something tangible, something believable. Was it just a dream? Could she have been assaulted by an intruder in her drunken torpor? Could her foggy memory of a large black creature be real? At home, she paced the living room, trying to think, trying to make sense of it all, till eventually, tired and wrung out, she retreated to her bed and slept. Another dream. Or was it? She opened her eyes to see the creature standing beside her bed, the choking smell of sulfur suddenly wrenching her back to that first night. It was all real. Here he was again, just like that other night, and his smooth body shone in the diffused moonlight that filtered through her curtains. She wasn't afraid, but her heart thumped with desire. She struggled up onto one elbow and reached for him, wanting to touch the glistening blue-black skin to know how it felt. But he was maddeningly just out of reach. He spoke. You have your wish, Lois. You are carrying a child. Enjoy him. Love him. Give him your heart but not your soul, for remember, your soul belongs to me. I, I'm having a boy? Lois lay back on her pillow, absorbing the news. Yes, a son. And after a brief pause, he repeated, almost tenderly, a son. The room began to blur, and the creature became difficult to see. Wait! Lois reached again, trying desperately to heave herself out of the bed. Will I see you again? We have a deal, you and I, smiled the creature. You will see me again when your time is done. The room cleared, and once again he was gone, leaving Lois hot with desire. Lois's pregnancy passed quickly, though the queasiness lingered and by the fourth month she was forced to give up her work and spend much of her time in bed. She was happy to do this rather than face the curious looks and guarded questions of her colleagues. But Lois was lonely. 
She had no one in her life whom she could rely upon to help her. So during periods when she felt a little brighter, she would venture out to the store or to the clinic for checkups. Dr. Singh was more than a little concerned and prescribed numerous remedies for her sickness, all to no avail. Lois slept fitfully, thoughts of the demon intruding every night. She was grateful to him for the gift of her child, but her desire for him made her loneliness all the more palpable. By the time the baby was due, Lois had become quite thin and frail, but her son was well-developed with a strong heartbeat. She could feel his sturdy little life moving inside her, and she loved him already. She couldn't wait for him to enter the world so that she could hold him. The doctor decided it was too risky to wait any longer. The baby would be induced the next day. Lois was ecstatic. The nursery had been prepared with a frilly bassinet and a little wooden dresser that held a bright array of tiny blue outfits waiting for the child to arrive. The delivery room was prepared, and Lois was hooked up to a monitor to observe the progress of both her and the baby throughout the birth. Pitocin was being steadily fed into her body through an intravenous drip and soon Lois could feel her womb beginning to contract. A mild sedative, administered earlier, had lulled her into a state of relaxed acceptance, and she dutifully followed the instructions of the midwife to breathe as she had been taught. Within moments, however, something began to go horribly wrong. Despite the pain-numbing medication she had been given— Lois began to lurch and writhe as a wave of agony washed over her, consuming and crippling her already frail body. Her cries echoed through the hospital corridors, bringing medical staff scurrying to the room. The monitor showed her heart to be under extreme distress, while the heartbeat of her son ticked steadily and calmly on. Searing pain tore through her, and bright red blood began hemorrhaging into the white sheets. Dr. Singh and his team labored vainly to stem the flow and to keep Lois's vital signs steady, but he could see that she was rapidly deteriorating. Lois thrashed and clutched, screaming for the pain to end, and between and below the commotion, she became aware of a familiar rumbling sound beside her ear. It was the voice of the creature, the demon whose seed had helped to create the child she was now struggling to bring into the world. Let go, he whispered, and suddenly she knew. This had been his plan all along. She would bear a healthy child and he would take her soul at the end of her life. Only he hadn't told her how soon that would be. But what of the baby? What would happen to him? Did the demonic creature finally have an heir? Had he been just as lonely and desperate for a child as she was? It made sense now. Acquiring souls would keep him alive but he had wanted more. 
he too had wanted a son to complete his life, to love and care for. Why hadn't she seen that? No, she wailed. Don't let him do this to me. He's killing me. He's going to take my baby. Calm down, Lois. She heard Dr. Singh cooing. No one is taking your child. There's no one here but the medical staff. You're in the best possible hands. He's there. Look, the demon. Don't let him near me. He wants my child. He wants me to die. There's no one there, Lois. Lois's heartbeat became more erratic and her spasms increased. Her limbs flailed and contorted like a monstrous crab caught in a net. Then, with a final, sickening, strangled scream, her body surrendered, and her baby erupted into the world with a healthy howl. In the final moments before her death, Lois, amidst the audible gasps from the medical team, reached down and caressed the glossy, midnight blue skin of her son. That was Colleen Moynes, A Child for Life, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen is an Austin musician, plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom, interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our second story is a classic from Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe was an American writer, editor, and literary critic. Poe is best known for his poetry and short stories particularly his tales of mystery and the macabre. 
He is widely regarded as a central figure of Romanticism in the United States and of American literature as a whole, and he was one of the country's earliest practitioners of the short story. He is generally considered the inventor of the detective fiction genre, and is further credited with contributing to the emerging genre of science fiction. He was the first well-known American writer to earn a living through writing alone, resulting in a financially difficult life and career. Join me, children of the night, for Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat, first published in the Saturday Evening Post, August 19, 1843. solicit belief. Mad indeed would I be to expect it, in a case where my very senses reject their own evidence. Yet, mad am I not, and very surely do I not dream. But tomorrow I die, and today I would unburthen my soul. My immediate purpose is to place before the world plainly, succinctly, and without comment, a series of mere household events. In their consequences, these events have terrified, have tortured, have destroyed me. Yet I will not attempt to expound them. To me they have presented little but horror. To many they will seem less terrible than Baroque. Hereafter, perhaps... Some intellect may be found which will reduce my phantasm to the commonplace. Some intellect more calm, more logical, and far less excitable than my own, which will perceive in the circumstances I detail with awe nothing more than an ordinary succession of very natural causes and effects. From my infancy I was noted for the docility and humanity of my disposition. My tenderness of heart was even so conspicuous as to make me the jest of my companions. I was especially fond of animals, and was indulged by my parents with a great variety of pets. With these I spent most of my time and never was so happy as when feeding and caressing them. This peculiarity of character grew with my growth, and in my manhood I derived from it one of my principal sources of pleasure. To those who have cherished an affection for a faithful and sagacious dog, I need hardly be at the trouble of explaining the nature or the intensity of the gratification thus derivable. There is something in the unselfish and self-sacrificing love of a brute which goes directly to the heart of him who has had frequent occasion to test the paltry friendship 
and gossamer fidelity of mere man. I married early and was happy to find in my wife a disposition not uncongenial with my own. Observing my partiality for domestic pets, she lost no opportunity of procuring those of the most agreeable kind. We had birds, goldfish, a fine dog, rabbits, a small monkey, and a cat. This latter was a remarkably large and beautiful animal, entirely black and sagacious to an astonishing degree. In speaking of his intelligence, my wife, who at heart was not a little tinctured with superstition, made frequent allusion to the ancient popular notion which regarded all black cats as witches in disguise. Not that she was ever serious upon this point, and I mention the matter at all for no better reason than that it happens just now to be remembered. Pluto, this was the cat's name, was my favorite pet and playmate. I alone fed him, and he attended me wherever I went about the house. It was even with difficulty that I could prevent him from following me through the streets. Our friendship lasted in this manner for several years, during which my general temperament and character, through the instrumentality of the fiend intemperance, had, I blush to confess it, experienced a radical alteration for the worse. I grew, day by day, more moody, more irritable, more regardless of the feelings of others. I suffered myself to use intemperate language to my wife. At length I even offered her personal violence. My pets, of course, were made to feel the change in my disposition. I not only neglected, but ill-used them. For Pluto, however, I still retained sufficient regard to restrain me from maltreating him, as I made no scruple of maltreating the rabbits, the monkey, or even the dog, when by accident or through affection they came in my way. But my disease grew upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? And at length even Pluto, who was now becoming old, and consequently somewhat peevish, even Pluto began to experience the effects of my ill-temper. One night, returning home, much intoxicated from one of my haunts about town, I fancied that the cat avoided my presence. I seized him when in his fright at my violence he inflicted a slight wound upon my hand with his teeth. The fury of a demon instantly possessed me. I knew myself no longer. My original soul seemed at once to take his flight from my body, and a more than fiendish malevolence, gin-nurtured, thrilled every fiber of my frame. I took from my waistcoat pocket a penknife, opened it, grasped the poor beast by the throat, and deliberately cut one of its eyes from the socket. I blush, I burn, I shudder, while I pen the damnable atrocity. When reason returned with the morning, 
when I had slept off the fumes of the night's debauch, I experienced a sentiment half of horror, half of remorse for the crime of which I had been guilty, but it was at best a feeble and equivocal feeling, and the soul remained untouched. I again plunged into excess, and soon drowned in wine all memory of the deed. In the meantime the cat slowly recovered. The socket of the lost eye presented, it is true, a frightful appearance, but he no longer appeared to suffer any pain. He went about the house as usual, but, as might be expected, fled in extreme terror at my approach. I had so much of my old heart left as to be first grieved by this evident dislike on the part of a creature which had once so loved me. But this feeling soon gave place to irritation, and then came, as if to my final and irrevocable overthrow, the spirit of perverseness. Of this spirit philosophy takes no account, yet I am not more sure that my soul lives than I am that perverseness is one of the primitive impulses of the human heart one of the indivisible primary faculties or sentiments which give direction to the character of man. Who has not a hundred times found himself committing a vile or a silly action for no other reason than because he knows he should not? Have we not a perpetual inclination in the teeth of our best judgment to violate that which is law, merely because we understand it to be such? This spirit of perverseness, I say, came to my final overthrow. It was this unfathomable longing of the soul to vex itself, to offer violence to its own nature, to do wrong for the wrong's sake only, that urged me to continue and finally to consummate the injury I had inflicted upon the unoffending brute. One morning, in cool blood, I slipped a noose about its neck and hung it to the limb of a tree, hung it with the tears streaming from my eyes and with the bitterest remorse at my heart, hung it because I knew that it had loved me, and because I felt it had given me no reason of offense, hung it because I knew that in so doing I was committing a sin, a deadly sin that would so jeopardize my immortal soul as to place it, if such a thing were possible, even beyond the reach of the infinite mercy of the most merciful and most terrible God. On the night of the day on which this cruel deed was done, I was aroused from sleep by the cry of fire. The curtains of my bed were in flames, the whole house was blazing. It was with great difficulty that my wife, the servant, and myself made our escape from the conflagration. The destruction was complete. My entire worldly wealth was swallowed up, and I resigned myself thenceforward to despair. I am above the weakness of seeking to establish a sequence of cause and effect, 
between the disaster and the atrocity. But I am detailing a chain of facts and wish not to leave even a possible link imperfect. On the day succeeding the fire, I visited the ruins. The walls, with one exception, had fallen in. This exception was found in a compartment wall, not very thick, which stood about the middle of the house and against which had rested the head of my bed. The plastering had there in great measure resisted the action of the fire, a fact which I attributed to its having been recently spread. About this wall a dense crowd were collected, and many persons seemed to be examining a particular portion of it with very minute and eager attention. The words, strange, singular, and other similar expressions excited my curiosity. I approached and saw, as if graven in bas-relief upon the white surface, the figure of a gigantic cat. The impression was given with an accuracy truly marvelous. There was a rope about the animal's neck. When I first beheld this apparition, for I could scarcely regard it as less, my wonder and my terror were extreme, but at length reflection came to my aid. The cat, I remembered, had been hung in a garden adjacent to the house. Upon the alarm of fire, this garden had been immediately filled by the crowd, by someone of whom the animal must have been cut from the tree and thrown through an open window into my chamber. This had probably been done with a view of arousing me from sleep. The falling of other walls had compressed the victim of my cruelty into the substance of the freshly spread plaster, the lime of which, with the flames and the ammonia from the carcass, had then accomplished the portraiture as I saw it. Although I thus readily accounted to my reason, if not altogether to my conscience, for the startling fact just detailed, it did not the less fail to make a deep impression upon my fancy. For months I could not rid myself of the phantasm of the cat, and during this period there came back into my spirit a half-sentiment that seemed, but was not, remorse. I went so far as to regret the loss of the animal, and to look about me among the vile haunts which I now habitually frequented for another pet of the same species, and of somewhat similar appearance, with which to supply its place. One night, as I sat half-stupefied in a den of more than infamy, my attention was suddenly drawn to some black object reposing upon the head of one of the immense hogsheads of gin or rum which constituted the chief furniture of the apartment. I had been looking steadily at the top of this hogshead for some minutes, and what now caused me surprise was the fact that I had not sooner perceived the object thereupon. I approached it and touched it with my hand. It was a black cat, a very large one, fully as large as Pluto, and closely resembling him in every respect but one. Pluto had not a white hair upon any portion of his body, but this cat had a large, although indefinite, splotch of white 
covering near to the whole region of the breast. Upon my touching him, he immediately arose, purred loudly, rubbed against my hand, and appeared delighted with my notice. This, then, was the very creature of which I was in search. I had once offered to purchase it of the landlord, but this person made no claim to it, knew nothing of it, had never seen it before. I continued my caresses, and when I prepared to go home, the animal evinced a disposition to accompany me. I permitted it to do so, occasionally stooping and patting it as I proceeded. When it reached the house, it domesticated itself at once, and became immediately a great favorite with my wife. For my own part, I soon found a dislike to it arising within me. This was just the reverse of what I had anticipated, but I know not how or why it was. Its evident fondness for myself rather disgusted and annoyed. By slow degrees, these feelings of disgust and annoyance rose into the bitterness of hatred. I avoided the creature, a certain sense of shame, and the remembrance of my former deed of cruelty preventing me from physically abusing it. I did not for some weeks strike or otherwise violently ill-use it, but gradually, very gradually, I came to look upon it with unutterable loathing, and to flee silently from its odious presence as from the breath of a pestilence. What added, no doubt, to my hatred of the beast was the discovery on the morning after I brought it home that, like Pluto, it also had been deprived of one of its eyes. This circumstance, however, only endeared it to my wife, who, as I have already said, possessed in a high degree that humanity of feeling which had once been my distinguishing trait and the source of many of my simplest and purest pleasures. With my aversion to this cat, however, its partiality for myself seemed to increase. It followed my footsteps with a pertinacity which it would be difficult to make the reader comprehend. Whenever I sat, it would crouch beneath my chair or spring upon my knees, covering me with its loathsome caresses. If I arose to walk, it would get between my feet and thus nearly throw me down, or, fastening its long and sharp claws in my dress, clamber in this manner to my breast. At such times, although I longed to destroy it with a blow, I was yet withheld from so doing, partly by a memory of my former crime, but chiefly, let me confess it at once, by absolute dread of the beast. This dread was not exactly a dread of physical evil, and yet I should be at a loss how otherwise to define it. I am almost ashamed to own, yes, even in this felon's cell, I am almost ashamed to own that the terror and horror with which the animal inspired me had been heightened by one of the merest chimeras it would be possible to conceive. 
My wife had called my attention more than once to the character of the mark of white hair of which I've spoken, and which constituted the sole visible difference between the strange beast and the one I had destroyed. The reader will remember that this mark, although large, had been originally very indefinite, but by slow degrees, degrees nearly imperceptible, and which for a long time my reason struggled to reject as fanciful, had at length assumed a rigorous distinctness of outline. It was now the representation of an object that I shudder to name, and and for this, above all, I loathed and dreaded and would have rid myself of the monster had I dared. It was now, I say, the image of a hideous, of a ghastly thing, of the gallows, a mournful and terrible engine of horror and of crime, of agony and of death. And now... Was I indeed wretched beyond the wretchedness of mere humanity? And a brute beast, whose fellow I had contemptuously destroyed, a brute beast to work out for me, for me, a man fashioned in the image of the high God, so much of insufferable woe, alas... Neither by day nor by night knew I the blessing of rest any more. During the former the creature left me no moment alone, and in the latter I started hourly from dreams of unutterable fear to find the hot breath of the thing upon my face and its vast weight, an incarnate nightmare that I had no power to shake off, incumbent eternally upon my heart. Beneath the pressure of torments such as these, the feeble remnant of the good within me succumbed. Evil thoughts became my sole intimates, the darkest and most evil of thoughts. The moodiness of my usual temper increased to hatred of all things and of all mankind, while from the sudden, frequent, and ungovernable outbursts of a fury to which I now blindly abandoned myself, my uncomplaining wife, alas, was the most usual and the most patient of sufferers. One day she accompanied me upon some household errand, into the cellar of the old building which our poverty compelled us to inhabit. The cat followed me down the steep stairs, and nearly throwing me headlong exasperated me to madness, uplifting an axe and forgetting in my wrath the childish dread which had hitherto stayed my hand. I aimed a blow at the animal, which of course would have proved instantly fatal had it descended as I wished. But this blow was arrested by the hand of my wife. Goaded by the interference into a rage more than demoniacal, I withdrew my arm from her grasp and buried the axe in her brain. She fell dead upon the spot without a groan. 
this hideous murder accomplished. I set myself forthwith and with entire deliberation to the task of concealing the body. I knew that I could not remove it from the house, either by day or by night, without the risk of being observed by the neighbors. Many projects entered my mind. At one period I thought of cutting the corpse into minute fragments and destroying them by fire. At another I resolved to dig a grave for it in the floor of the cellar. Again I deliberated about casting it in the well in the yard, about packing it in a box as if merchandise with the usual arrangements, and so getting a porter to take it from the house. Finally I hit upon what I considered a far better expedient than either of these. I determined to wall it up in the cellar, as the monks of the Middle Ages are recorded to have walled up their victims. For a purpose such as this, the cellar wall was well adapted. Its walls were loosely constructed, and had lately been plastered throughout with a rough plaster, which the dampness of the atmosphere had prevented from hardening. Moreover, in one of the walls was a projection caused by a false chimney or fireplace that had been filled up and made to resemble the red of the cellar. I made no doubt that I could readily displace the bricks at this point, insert the corpse, and wall the hole up as before, so that no eye could detect anything suspicious. And in this calculation I was not deceived. By means of a crowbar I easily dislodged the bricks, and, having carefully deposited the body against the inner wall, I propped it in that position, while, with little trouble, I relayed the whole structure as it originally stood. Having procured mortar, sand, and hair, with every possible precaution, I prepared a plaster which could not be distinguished from the old, and with this I very carefully went over the new brickwork. When I had finished, I felt satisfied that all was right. The wall did not present the slightest appearance of having been disturbed. The rubbish on the floor was picked up with the minutest care. I looked around triumphantly and said to myself, Here at last, then my labor has not been in vain. My next step was to look for the beast which had been the cause of so much wretchedness, for I had at length firmly resolved to put it to death. Had I been able to meet with it at that moment, there could have been no doubt of its fate, but it appeared that the crafty animal had been alarmed at the violence of my previous anger and forbore to present itself in my present mood. It is impossible to describe or to imagine the deep, the blissful sense of relief which the absence of the detested creature occasioned in my bosom. It did not make its appearance during the night, and thus for one night at least, since its introduction into the house, I soundly and tranquilly slept, I slept, even with the burden of murder upon my soul. The second and the third day passed, and still my tormentor came not. 
Once again I breathed as a free man. The monster in terror had fled the premises forever. I should behold it no more. My happiness was supreme. The guilt of my dark deed disturbed me but little. Some few inquiries had been made, but these had been readily answered. Even a search had been instituted, but of course nothing was to be discovered. I looked upon my future felicity as secured. Upon the fourth day of the assassination, a party of the police came very unexpectedly into the house and proceeded again to make rigorous investigation of the premises. Secure, however, in the inscrutability of my place of concealment, I felt no embarrassment whatever. The officers bade me accompany them in their search. They left no nook or corner unexplored. At length, for the third or fourth time, they descended into the cellar. I quivered not in a muscle. My heart beat calmly as that of one who slumbers in innocence. I walked the cellar from end to end. I folded my arms upon my bosom and roamed easily to and fro. The police were thoroughly satisfied and prepared to depart. The glee at my heart was too strong to be restrained. I burned to say, if but one word, by way of triumph, and to render doubly sure their assurance of my guiltlessness, "'Gentlemen,' I said at last, as the party ascended the steps, "'I delight to have allayed your suspicions. "'I wish you all health and a little more courtesy. "'By the by, gentlemen, this, this is a very well-constructed house.' "'In the rapid desire to say something easily, "'I scarcely knew what I uttered at all. "'I may say an excellently well-constructed house. "'These walls!' Are you going, gentlemen? These walls are solidly put together. And here, through the mere frenzy of bravado, I rapped heavily with a cane, which I held in my hand upon that very portion of the brickwork behind which stood the corpse of the wife of my bosom. But may God shield and deliver me from the fangs of the arch-fiend. No sooner had the reverberation of my blows sunk into silence than I was answered by a voice from within the tomb, by a cry at first muffled and broken like the sobbing of a child, and then quickly swelling into one long, loud, and continuous scream, utterly anomalous and inhuman, a howl, a wailing shriek, half of horror and half of triumph, such as might have arisen only out of hell, conjointly from the throats of the damned in their agony and of the demons that exult in the damnation. Of my own thoughts it is folly to speak. Swooning, I staggered to the opposite wall. For one instant the party upon the stairs remained motionless through extremity of terror and of awe. In the next a dozen stout arms were toiling at the wall. It fell bodily, the corpse already greatly decayed and clotted with gore, 
stood erect before the eyes of the spectators. Upon its head, with red extended mouth and solitary eye of fire, sat the hideous beast whose craft had seduced me into murder, and whose informing voice had consigned me to the hangman. I had walled the monster up within the tomb. That was Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat, as read by Martin Rato. Martin Rato is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you, Martin. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you haven't already, we would love your support over on Patreon or via PayPal on our website. Tales to Terrify is free to listen to, but it certainly isn't free to produce. Bringing you quality stories week after week is a labor of love and terror for all of us. And a small donation goes a long way to help support the writers and narrators who bring you this production. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify or donate via PayPal through the link near the bottom of our homepage at tales to terrify.com. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors, Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with help from Meredith Morgenstern and Julia Zellman, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Join us again next week as we seed your nightmares with more Tales to Terrify. <laughs>